Let's take our Bibles, if you please turn with me to Acts chapter number 4. Acts chapter uh, number 4. As you uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter number 4, the first persecution recorded from the church is found in Acts chapter number 4, and we've learned a number of things in this chapter, and we find that the problem that the religious leaders had was not with, per se, the miracle, but was that uh, the miracle was done in the name of Jesus, and that they were teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, and so the believers were threatened on uh, a number of occasions. We know that later in Acts, those threats will come through. Uh, the disciples are going to be, apostles are going to be beaten. But here in this chapter, we saw the first response from the first century. What did they do? How did they respond to the threat? And we find here in this chapter that they uh, had a board meeting and they met together. No, 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 they didn't do any of that. They did a simple thing. They prayed. That's what they did. They were facing threats and they prayed. And in their prayer, we saw that they focused on God. They exalted God in their prayer, and the request was simple. It was one verse, if you go with me there, to verse 29. And now, Lord, this is the request, Behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants, that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Now, let's look at what happened after they prayed that prayer. Did God answer that prayer? How did he do so? Let's continue reading verse 31. The Bible says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. (laughs) There it is. God answered that prayer. Verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joes, who by the apostles were surnamed Barnabas, which is by being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Some great things are happening in the church. But I will bring your attention in verse number 31 and 32. There are a number of things that are said about those believers, and I want to, uh, us to take note of three of those things. The Bible says, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they, notice, were assembled together. And the Bible says, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. How many of them were filled with the Holy Ghost? All. 
Verse 32, and the multitude of them that, that believed were of one heart and of one soul. There are three things that we see here as we look at the conclusion. They finished praying, and the Bible makes a declaration about uh, how these believers were. And there are three things that we see. They were assembled, they were filled, and they were of one heart. And so I want to preach as we think about the first century church. I want to think about those three expressions, and that is the title of the message this morning. Assembled, filled, and of one heart. Assembled, filled, and of one heart. And by way of introduction, I want to take those three things, and as we, if you would, pull the curtain away, and we look into the church, and we ask ourselves, how did the church interact? How did the church live? What did they do? What does the first century church look like? And we see here that the first thing we determine when you remember Peter and John, after being threatened, they return, remember, to their own company. They return to the local New Testament church. They return to the group of people who were more dear to them than anybody else. And as we understand the circumstances of the day, the gospel was first preached unto the Jews at Jerusalem. It was during the Feast of Pentecost, and so Jews that were part of the despoir that was scattered around the world would come back to Jerusalem during this specific time. And among the people that were gathered there, many people believe, we see so far thousands of them have believed, and they were perhaps split into different companies because there, were no, there was no building to accommodate that amount of people. And so they all had their own company, perhaps split with the apostles themselves, who were 12. And there was a lot of teaching, as we saw in the first two chapters going on, they were uh, learning and teaching, and they were continually, uh, con uh, uh, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Uh, but what we learn here, as they pray together, the Bible repeats to us, they were assembled. <laughs> and I think how important it is, particularly as we think about this last year, as to the importance of God's people being assembled together. Now, I am certainly grateful for all the technology and the live streaming and the posting and all the things that we can do and use the, uh, the tools that are at, at our disposal to get the gospel out. But let me make this very clear. There is and there will never be any substitute, no matter what the government or the world says, for the assembling of God's people into one place. The online are wonderful things. But it is never a substitute for the assembling of God's people. That is the life of the church. The church cannot live. The church cannot do what the church needs to do unless the church assembles together. And the reason why we find that to be so important is because of what happens as a result of that. We're going to find that their prayers are answered when they are assembled together. They are empowered when they are assembled together. And God does wonderful things when God's people are assembled together. And it is important for us to understand as we think here about the 21st century and we think about the world that is changing and we are interested in New Testament Christianity, although we can use all the many tools at our disposal, there is nothing that can be a substitute for the assembling of God's people. Someone who says, well, I want to be part of a Bible church. I want to be part of a church that resembled the church of Acts. Well, I'll tell you how you can resemble that. Come to the place where the church assembles.
That's what the first century church did. As a matter of fact, as we noted last week, it is the first place they ran to under threat. They didn't run to their homes. They didn't run to their family members. They didn't post it on social media. They went to the place where God's people assembled. And so it shows us in the eyes of the first century church, the place where they assembled together was preeminent in their lives without mistake. They were assembled. The Bible says also in verse number 31 that in the place they were assembled together, verse 31, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now what is interesting, often we think about this idea of being filled with the Holy Ghost, that this is pertains to people who are just kind of a select few people in the church, but the Bible makes it clear that all of those believers that were assembled together, all of them without exception were filled with the Holy Ghost. It does not exclude one. The word all, as we determine, means all. And that's all, all means. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. Do we pray for that? That First Day Baptist Church, every single member would be filled with the Holy Ghost? What a church that would be. If we not only assembled ourselves together, but we get to the place as we intercede to the throne of grace, as we come together desiring for the same thing that here, as we see in this chapter, that God would grant unto His servants boldness to speak the word of the Lord, that God would grant that request and do it in such a way uh, that we are all filled with the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that the result of that is they spake the word of God with boldness. Remember, that's what they had asked. And so we, we, we ask ourselves, right, they ask for boldness, and then they preach with boldness, but what happens in between? They were filled with the Holy Ghost. You see, the request for boldness is evidence as God answering that prayer by giving them his, the Holy Ghost. Now remember, if you go back to chapter number 1, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he, when he had promised the coming of the Holy Ghost, He gave the disciples, the apostles, the first century believers there, the Great Commission. He repeated that five times, once in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and once in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But he said, before you do that, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father uh, where the Holy Ghost would come down. And they did wait. And when the Holy Ghost came down on the day of Pentecost, then the Bible says they were empowered and they they, uh, preached the wonderful works of God. And the point is here is they did not do the work of God without being empowered by the Spirit of God. So they were assembled, they were filled, but we also see they were of one heart. And I ask myself here, how how can people be of one heart? We're all different. There are different personalities. Sometimes, you know, personalities class. That's just, I guess, uh, the way it goes sometimes. But how can a group of people be of one heart? Now, I want to remind you who who this group of people is that are present here in this place. Uh, Based upon the preaching of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter number 2, and also in Acts chapter number 4, Acts chapter 3 as well, all of those chapters, what has Peter and John been repeating to the people? They've been repeating here to the group of people, you have crucified the Holy One. 
By wicked ends, this is what you've done. In the Bible, we've already seen that some of the people that heard, they were pricked to the heart, and they said, what must we do? And he says, repent and believe the gospel. And many of them, they turned, they were baptized, they were added to the church, they began learning in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread, and they continued in prayers, and all those things happened. And so when the Bible here describes this group of believers as being of one heart, understand who is part of this group. Some people had followed Christ, and some of those same people had cried, crucify him, crucify him. And now you have those same people in the same room of one heart, and we ask ourselves, how does that happen? I'll tell you how that happens. Through salvation. By faith. You see, what united these people together was one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why Peter and John told the religious leaders, they said, you can't preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why those people said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot help ourselves. This has changed our lives. And so therefore, as we think about those believers, they were assembled, they were filled, and they were of one heart. And I want us to know several things about this church as we consider verse 31 down to verse number 37. Then we're going to transition to chapter 5. Something interesting is going to happen. As a matter of fact, something unexpected in the midst of the great things that God is doing, and all of a sudden, right then, you have Ananias and Sapphira. A great tragedy takes place in the church. In the midst of the great work of God. And that's not going to take place all in this message, but we're going to deal with the first part. I guess the good part, we're going to talk about the negative part there as we go to chapter 5, perhaps next week. I want to consider a number of truths about this church. The first thing we determine about this church is this, is that their prayers were answered. Their prayers were answered. Remember in verse 31, the Bible says, when they had prayed. Now, remember what they had prayed. We, could, we went over the, the prayer request last week, but I want to focus on the petition itself. Because if you look at the prayer the prayer is a declaration of God, of who God is, about the work of redemption, uh, and all those things. But the petition is quite simple, quite short, quite specific. And so we ask ourselves here, how do we know when God answers our prayers? And I'll tell you how we know when God answers our prayers, if we have asked specific prayer requests. You see, if we just pray, generally speaking, if we just kind of uh, uh, hurled out some petition, some general petition that, by the way, if they were answered, we wouldn't know it, I think that's a problem. And here we find that when they had prayed, the Bible says the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Remember, what did they ask for? For boldness. Uh, if you go over to verse number 33, the Bible describes this group as, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So that you have a people that is empowered, a people that is bold. How? You see that their prayer was answered. Now think about it. Sometimes we think that these people were like supernatural human beings. They're beyond us. No, they weren't. They were threatened. If they did not obey, there would be some physical consequences in their lives if they did not stop to teach and, and preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And when they were let go, the Bible says they were let go being threatened. 
But as they pray, we find here that the prayer is answered. Remember early on in uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4, after the miracle of the lame man who's now leaping and praising God, remember what happened? And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So you remember, they were preaching the resurrection from the dead. They were preaching in the name of Jesus. And uh, they said, don't do that anymore. Don't speak or preach in his name. And they said, God give us boldness. God gives them boldness in verse number 31. And then in verse number 33, the Bible said, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So then stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. They continued. They were emboldened. They were empowered. You see, what was their petition for boldness? They asked for boldness, and God gave them boldness. And so what we find about the first century church, we see their prayers were answered. And so there are two questions I want to ask ask ourselves this evening is, first of all, do we pray like the first century church prayed? And number two, do we see our prayers answered as the first century church's prayers were answered? And the truth is, if we don't pray specifically, how do we even know that God is answering our prayers? You see, is our praying kind of this general thing where we say, oh, you know, well, uh, you know, God bless us. What does that mean? Oh, well, God, would you, uh, would you, uh, you know, just help us and, you know, bless us and watch over us. And, and we pray in generalities and we never know if God's going to answer those prayers. I remember a preacher uh, saying, Uh, nothing is dynamic until it is specific. And the truth is, if we're going to see uh, God work in our lives, we must be specific about it. Again, that is praying in the will of God. It's not just praying specifically, hey, God, give me this and give me this, and then these are not things that are in the will of God. Here, as they were threatened, remember, they did not pray that God would remove the threat. They did not pray for God to stamp out the enemy They prayed that in the midst of their threat, God would grant them boldness, and God did. Their prayers were answered. The second thing we notice about these believers is that their possessions were surrendered. I think that is most interesting to note about this church. Uh, Verse 31, he talks about, right, the answer to their prayer request. But then there's verse 32, there's kind of uh, an insight into their hearts. In verse number 33, talks about their preaching with power. Then back in verse 34, there's an insight into their hearts. And then there's the example from verse 35 to 37 about one man who we call Barnabas and about what he did as an example. Uh, But as we come to verse 32, the Bible says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. You see, their possessions here were surrendered. Now, many are those who have either misunderstood or misrepresented this verse. Some will say, well, see, here is the proof concept for socialism and communism. Do you see it? How many of you have heard that, right? There's articles being written today 
about how the Bible promotes socialism and communism. And they say, hey, look, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, here's the prime example. Uh, They put all their possessions together into one basket, and they all equally divided all the possessions to everyone. Is that what happened? No. Some good-hearted people may even ask, how do you explain here, Pastor, what happened without seeing some sort of, you know, socialism, communism idea? You know, there are a number of things that we find in this verse that stand in contrast to the whole idea and system of communism and socialism, which makes so-called, based upon what communism claims and socialism, let's make all people equal so that we all share the same amount of goods. That's the whole idea. Let us all have one purse. However, there are three things that fly in the face of communism and socialism that we find in verse number 32. And I'm going to show you that's not it at all. I'm going to show you three things. Notice verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed, the first thing we learn is they were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. There are three things that separate biblical Christianity from socialism and communism. You ready for them? Number one, their faith. There it is, their faith, verse one, verse 32. And the multitude of them, who are we talking about? What group of people we're talking about? The multitude of them that believe. There's the main difference between what was taking place in Acts chapter 4 and socialism and communism. The group of people we find in verse 32 were believers. They were part of the first century church. Well, I would say that that would be enough indeed to separate the whole uh, uh, those who advocate for socialism and communism from what was happening in the first century. You see, these people, they did what they did because they were believers, not because they were part of a country. They did what they did because their lives were changed by the power of the Spirit of God. This is indeed the great failure of those who have tried socialism and communism time and time again. These are people who are without God. Every time, Karl Marx, the father of communism, says, uh, named religion as the number one enemy of communism. And I'm thinking, well, why, why are you saying this is communism? If uh, uh, religion is the number one enemy, this is the whole basis of what these people did is that they believed. He said that religion must be torn down for communism to work. Vladimir Lenin said, we must combat religion. This is the ABC of Marxism. When he founded the USSR, he ordered 70,000 churches to be destroyed. History testifies that wherever socialism has been tried and communism, churches become the first target enemy. Socialism and communism borrows. I I heard this quote. I thought it was really good. Socialism and communism borrows the compassionate aims of Christianity in meeting people's needs while rejecting the Christian expectation that these things will not be coerced or forced. They take what what happened in the church organically and they say, let's force that upon a people. But the truth is, what is the root of what happened to these people is that the multitude of them that was gathered there, there were a multitude of them that believed. So this, right off the bat, is not socialism and not communism. 
because we're talking about a group of believers. But it goes even further than that. We not only see their faith, number two, we see their freedom. <laughs> That's a complete difference between communism and socialism and what was happening here. You see, the apostles here, at no point do we find, uh, at no point did the apostles command the believers of the church to bring their possessions. You don't find that. This was a free will offering. It was not coerced. The believers were not forced, nor were they threatened. Believers always give voluntarily. In uh, 2 Corinthians, I want you to turn with me. Uh, we look at the inside of the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about a particular offering that they promised to give. And remember, he goes on and talks about the believers who were in Macedonia and some of the example of giving. And in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8, let's turn there if you um, have your Bibles. Notice in... Um, Let's begin in verse number 1. Wait a minute. I think it's 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians? Chapter 8? Okay, all right. I must be confused here. Notice uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you do wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Okay, so, so uh, what, what do the churches of Macedonia look like? Well, verse 2, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded into the riches of their liberality. So the church of Macedonia, who is a very poor church, and the believers there were very poor, the Bible says in their deep poverty, they yet abounded in their liberality. That means in their giving. You see, the whole idea of socialism and communism is, hey, take from the rich to give to the poor. That is not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is when all the poor give. That's what happened. Verse 3, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. And here is the difference between communism, socialism, and New Testament Christianity. Communism and socialism is coerced, while New Testament Christianity is a giving of ourselves. We do things not because we are forced to. We do things because we want to. The Bible says, verse 4, praying with us uh, with uh, us, with much entreaty that we should receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints, that th this they did, not as we hope, for first they gave of their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, inasmuch as we desire uh, Titus, uh, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. So there it is, you see. Socialism and communism, where the government takes, is where the government takes over, is the complete opposite of freedom. It eliminates the choice of the individual that we find in the first century church. So, as we look at their possessions here, it is clear that we find that their possessions were surrendered. How? Because of their faith because of their freedom, but also the third thing, we see their fellowship. The Bible says, verse, and the multitude of them that believe were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that all the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. 
In other words, it shows us here their, their great fellowship. In other words, these people were giving, provided for one another because they were in fellowship. As we think about the first century church, uh, many of those Jews who would uh, be in Jerusalem, if they came to, the, and some people that were spread around the world would come back to the day of Pentecost, many of them would revisit their families. Well, some of them probably went, and they came to the Feast of Pentecost, they heard the preaching of Peter, and then they got saved, and then they go back to their homes, and they talk to their families there in Jerusalem, and they say, hey, uh, uh, Peter was preaching, and I heard, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and it says, ah, we're not going to talk to you, we're going to disinherit you. Uh, you don't have a home here. Uh, you must leave now. We will never talk to you again. You are banished. We're never going to see you again unless you deny Jesus Christ. And so you have a significant group of people who've lost their jobs, who've lost their homes, who've been disinherited from their families, and who have nothing. Well, who stepped up? The church did. The church saw the great need, and they had all things common. And so someone had a need over here and said, hey, we can take care of that. And Barnabas thought to himself, well, you know, I have a piece of property over here I'm not using. If I sell that, I can probably take care of a good percentage of people who need lodging and who need food. And that's how it happened. Their fellowship prompted this idea that they had all things common. You see, it is the exact opposite of socialism and communism. The exact opposite. You see, the state will never be the church. And the state must never attempt to do what the church does. Because when it happens in the church, it happens because of what Christ has done in the life of those who are in the church. And not because of anything they must do. So do we want to fix the world? I'll tell you how, how to fix the world. Convert the world to Christ. And everything will be fixed. It can't be that simple. It is that simple. That's what happened here. All those believers were gathered. Can you imagine in one moment, one decision, they trusted Christ as a Savior. In one moment, they lost everything. How do we deal with all this tragedy? I'll tell you how. The church. <laughs> there was. They were together. They shared their problems together. Those who had need, it was made aware of, and they took care of that need. The Bible says in verse number 34, neither was there any among them that lacked. Can you imagine that? Nobody lacked anything. Why? Because of the faith, the freedom, and the fellowship of those believers. There's another thing we notice here. So, by the way, this is not socialism and communism. It's the exact opposite. Their prayers were answered. Their possessions were surrendered. Thirdly, well, maybe I should park on there a little more. Our possessions are not our own. They belong to the Lord. What we have does not belong to us. The Bible makes clear that we are stewards of the things that God gives us. In other words, when we are born, we live this life, and the things that we accumulate in this life are granted to us, and they are, if you would, we are in a stewardship because all these things belong to God. Why? Because the moment we die, all those things are going to be passed on to another, and when we meet God, we're not going to meet God with all of our possessions. We're going to meet God having to answer for our stewardship. How did we handle the things that God gave us? Uh, did we handle those things for His glory? Or are we kind of just 
indulge in those things and it all for ourselves. May the Lord help us. That was the first century. Now, that's not what me preaching here about uh, you trying to give more. I'm just saying, have all your possessions been surrendered to the will of God? Have you said, nothing is mine. It all belongs to God. God, help me to manage it for your glory. Help me to give it all to you and help me to uh, exercise all that I have for your will and for your glory. That was free. (laughs) Their prayers were answered. Their possessions were surrendered. We see, thirdly, their preaching was empowered. Verse number 33, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, I like that word grace. We talked about it a few weeks ago. How the grace of God is something that goes beyond just our salvation. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith, and it is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. A man is saved by grace through faith. That's it. But also the grace of God is available for every day for the believer. In the sense of the Apostle Paul, when Paul wanted to have his infirmity taken away from him, he asked God to remove that infirmity, and God did not remove that infirmity. But what did God tell me? He says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my, uh, uh, for, uh, your, uh, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so what Paul says, I'll take the grace of God. If my weakness means I can get the grace of God, I'll take the grace of God so that I can have the power of God. Well, here, these believers were empowered to preach with great power. How could they preach with great power? Because the grace of God was upon them. Because God, if you would, enabled them, bestowed His grace upon them, and He is the one that gave them power to preach the Word. You see, it is alarming today in the 21st century where uh, preachers and teachers and whatever you want to call them have resorted to many gimmicks. Hey, let's, let's do this and let's have uh, popcorn and watch a movie. And let me tell you how this movie can relate to your life and all of this uh, nonsense that is taking place in the churches and there is no power in churches anymore. And uh, uh, the, the grace of God is not upon them because there is no power there. Men are preaching their opinions, their own ideas. Uh, They're telling a world how uh, to have a better life in this world. And that is not Bible preaching. The Bible preaching here was empowered. What would they say? Hey, don't say certain things. Don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, The subject of the resurrection should be done away with. Don't uh, don't preach about that sort of stuff. Uh, We're in the 21st century. That's always been done. Uh, The world has always said, hey, look, there's a certain amount of things that you probably don't want to preach on. And the truth is, we don't concern ourselves with what the world wants to hear or not hear. We must concern ourselves with what God wants us to speak. They say, don't preach and teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't preach the resurrection. We're going to preach the resurrection in the name of Jesus. It is time that we as God's people would concern ourselves with the fact that we have the audience of one. I mean, the Lord help me or anybody that preaches the word of God to say, I am preaching to please God and not anybody else. Now, if that offends you, I'm sorry. But the truth is, God has the answers for your life. I don't have the answers for your life. There's no amount of psychobabble that I could give you that could, be, that could help you. But I tell you what will help you, Jesus Christ. Their preaching was empowered. But we see thirdly, or fourthly, I guess I lost the track here. Their purpose was changed. 
That's what we see in the church. Their prayers were answered. Their possessions were surrendered. Their preaching was empowered. And their purpose was changed. Notice verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prizes of the things which were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, who was he? A what? A Levite. What did the Levites do? They were practicing in the temple. They were on a rotation. We determined that earlier. They were on rotation. Every six weeks, they were on a rotation. Different groups of priests would come in. He was part of that group. Now, his name was changed to Barnabas by the apostles. To say uh, Because what? His first name identified him with the Levites and with the, uh, the functions in the temple. His new name identifies him with the church. <laughs> And the Bible says that he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And I'm thinking here, what happened to Barnabas? I'll tell you what happened to Barnabas. He used to be Joe's. And now he's Barnabas. How? Because of what Jesus Christ did in his life. So what happened? Why did this man, who was evidently a wealthy man, or one who managed his affairs well in this world, he knew that he had land, he possessed land, and the Bible gives us one example. Many of them did this, because the Bible summarizes for us in verse number 34, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them. You get that? Some of the believers in the first century had extra stuff. They had extra stuff. In this world. And what they did with the extra stuff is they said, you know what, there's a need right here. I'm going to bring what I have to meet that need. I don't need this. I'm going to give it to the church. The Bible says, as many as were possessor of land in the house sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. And some people may say, well, you know, that, that's, a little, that's a little radical Christianity there. Well, I would say you're right. It is radical Christianity. But isn't what, has, has, isn't what happened in their lives radical? You see, their purpose has completely changed. They used to live for the now, but now they live for the then. Uh, they used to live for the things that were temporal. Now they live for the things that are eternal. And their purpose has completely changed. Here was a man who was at some point involved in the practice of the temple, doing all the rituals every day, all those rituals that should have reminded him of Jesus Christ. And at some point in his life, he was, we don't have no indication that he was saved before the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter number 2. So somewhere along the line, this man came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior, and he went from being a Levite to being a man who was completely surrendered to the will of God and says, hey, there's a need, I'm going to give it. I, th- I think it's interesting that this is all mentioned in together with the power of preaching and then bringing their possessions. We think about the first century, what was the church about? It was about this. Everybody doing what they could. Is, is that what you see in this chapter? Everybody doing 
what they could. I want you to see. Let's go. Verse 30, 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse number 32. So see, all. Verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, and said any, and uh, neither said any of them, not one of them, that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but had all things common. Uh, verse uh, number 34, neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors. Notice, as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And so you say, okay, so what does uh, the first century church look like? I think it's pretty evident here. Everybody did what they could. Not everybody could do the same thing. But everybody did what they could. Some people were preaching. Some people were praying. Some people were giving. Whatever it is, everybody did what they could. There's no such thing as a first century church where half or three quarters of the congregations just come and sit and do nothing. That does not exist in the Bible. May the Lord help us to say, Lord, how, how is it that I can get involved in the work of the church? What can I do? What, what did the first century church do? What is it within, within my ability? What is my gift? What is it that I can do? And certainly, this came from the fact that they were assembled, filled, and of one heart. I think these are foundational things that we have to ask ourselves here. Are we faithfully assembling? Are we filled and yielded to the Spirit of God and are we of one heart? Or are we being distracted by the things of this world? May the Lord help us to be as the first century church, assembled, filled, and of one heart. And I believe all those things will result out of that. Their prayers, our prayers will be answered. Our possessions will be surrendered. Our preaching will be empowered. And our purpose will be changed. And may the Lord help us. For that to be true of First State Baptist Church, let's pray.